When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book News Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Karen Heenan, author of Coming Apart. How are you doing today? I'm great, Deidre. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Well, I have been a reader of historical fiction since I was a little kid, and when I got a little older, I started writing it. My first three books are a series set in Tudor England, which is an era I was always interested in. But several years ago, I started thinking about family stories I grew up listening to, and I really wanted to write a book set during the Great Depression. I think it's an era that's really drastically underserved in historical fiction, you know, sandwiched in between the wars and with the Roaring Twenties, it's not as dramatic, but the stories are as dramatic. They're just not, you know, as as showy, maybe, would be the right word as some of the other eras. And I once I got started, I just couldn't stop. Why did you so- decide on the title Coming Apart? That wasn't the original title. It was the name of one of the interior sections of the book. But when I started putting the final version of the book together to set out to send out to a few readers, I double checked Amazon because, you know, people publish books so quickly. And my title had been taken by a recent thriller. Um, which also involved two sisters and a baby, but it did not end well. And to make it even more complicated, the author had the same first name, and I decided rather than, you know, bring about that level of confusion, I would go with something else. And coming apart worked for me because everybody's lives literally are coming apart at that point. And Ava, my main character, is a seamstress, so it sort of came back to me as coming apart at the seams. Excellent. You know, you started off with the mother's death. Tell us about it a little bit. Well, that that was always the original plan was to start with Lily's death. Um, because you want to start a book with some kind of an inciting incident. And this really, you know, everybody's lives hit the fan when she died. Um, Ava, my main character, had lived, you know, in that same house with her mother growing up. When she married, they stayed there. Her mother 
supported her when her husband was away at the war. Her helped her mother helped her raise her children. Her mother helped her sew and bring in money. Um, so she was an enormous part of her daughter's life. Aside from you know the emotional grief Ava will be feeling, there is also the worry of how am I going to replace all these things that my mother was to me? Plus, her mother also delivered all of her children. So that's another complication. They're going to have to find money to pay for a midwife. And there's just the, you know, it's always been a very personal thing in the family. As far as the other main character goes, um, Claire, she is the sister who got away. She was the only one of the children who was educated and got a job outside of the little coal town where they grew up. And she married well, and she hasn't been home in a few years. So her mother's death is what will bring Claire home. And the two sisters will have to sit down and try to remember who they were to each other all those years ago. And it's not going to be an easy time for them. Now, you talk about pregnancy during the Depression. Tell us what were some of the things that you learned in researching this? Well, this was an this was a hard part for me because I don't have children, but I have a lot of friends who are oversharers, so they have been, you know, wonderful research tools in describing a lot of the less savory aspects of pregnancy. But also during a time when there was so little money and so little food, and when a mother's normal state would be to make sure her children ate before she did, it really complicates things when she has four hungry children in front of her, but she's also carrying a child. You know, somebody's going to get shortchanged there. And it's not just going to be the mother for a change. So it was, it you know, and of course, children were born at home because that was the only situation in a place like that. If they were lucky, they could afford a doctor, but most of the time it would be a midwife or a neighbor woman. Um, I, I can't imagine it. I found poverty much harder to write in this book than in my book set in the 16th century. Things seemed a lot more equitable then, but you know, in the 1930s, rich and poor had you know a much wider gap of technology and possessions and, you know, just about everything. I may have wandered a little afield on that answer, but. <laughs> yeah, but you, you know, you brought it to life in Claire's life because she was upper middle class. Can you describe her life? Yeah, Claire is uh, the slightly younger sister. She, she got a hotel job straight out of high school and she met and married an older man. He's wealthy. He took her to Philadelphia. And her only job basically is to be a decorative wife who gives her husband children. And she managed the decorative, but unlike her sister, she did not manage the children. So she doesn't have a lot of purpose in her life and she feels it. She's, you know, she does social things. She does charitable things. She tries to get along with her mother-in-law, who wouldn't have accepted her well anyway because of her background, but without having any grandchildren, she really sees very little purpose for Claire. So Claire is also really missing her own family, but 
she's very uncomfortable with her background because she's afraid that her husband, you know, once he spends more time with them, will really look at where she came from and look at her differently. And she's having a hard enough time as it is. Tell us about the character Pearl. Pearl was a later addition to the story. Pearl is Ava's oldest daughter. She's 11, going on 12, sometimes going on 40, because kids really had to grow up early then. The older kids definitely helped to raise the younger ones. And Pearl was always a part of the book, but she ended up being a third point of view character. I gave her um, just brief diary entries throughout the book. She's sort of my Greek chorus because she can talk about things that the two adult women don't see. She can talk about them in ways that they don't see themselves or each other. And there is something that happens later in the book that reflects back to her Aunt Claire's childhood. And that really became an important part to me because it made Ava step up a little bit more and really continue to rebuild her relationship with her sister. I I enjoyed writing Pearl. She's she's a really smart girl stuck in a really tough place and she loves school. She knows she's probably going to have to leave when she gets older, but she has an old school notebook that she likes to write her thoughts down in and you know, she has hopes for her future, but she doesn't know where it's going to lead yet. You know, you talk about culture during the depression. I thought it was so fascinating about the people who were bringing the whiskey in the house. Tell us a little about that. Well, it was still, um, we were coming to the end of Prohibition, but it hadn't happened yet. And the whiskey came into the house. Um, Claire and her husband, Harry, came back home for the funeral and the wake. And Harry, to you know, grease the wheels and make things a little more social, brought a nice bottle of whiskey. But it was still Prohibition, and Ava... Ava's mother had brought her children up um, not to drink because her husband had been a drinker and had been violent. So Ava mostly came to maturity during Prohibition, so it's not something she's comfortable with. Her husband is her husband has a really rough time. He's a minor. He's always under threat of losing his job, and she has a son in his early teens, and she just thinks that that is too much temptation to have in the house. And Ava is a little judgy, so I think she would also think that people who drink would be taking the easy way out. It's not that she wants to suffer, but she's someone who will face things head on, even if she doesn't like it. Now, you know, you're talking about death during the Depression. Describe the actions and how the people act during that time period. Well, it varied from place to place, but in the small coal town that I created for this book, um, things are really, they're not really all that in the 20th century yet. I mean, there's only electric in a few of the mine managers' homes. Everybody is living in a way that they would have probably in the 1880s when Lily, the dead mother, first came to this country. Um, So, you know, she's, when, when she dies at home, her daughter and granddaughters, you know, they wash the body, they dress her, she's laid out in the front room, and the neighbors all come calling 
usually with something to eat. And she is mourned by the community. And then they have it. it they're Catholic. So there is um, a funeral the next day at the church in town. And afterwards, um, rather than going back to the house, which is very small, um, the uh, Father Dennis, the town priest, lets them use the the community room adjacent to the church to have, you know, the wake afterwards so that people can get together and mourn. And then everybody just goes home and Ava spends a little bit more time with her sister and brother-in-law before they leave to go back to Philadelphia. It's much more personal, the, the way the two sisters sat up all night with their mother's body. Um, and their mother had always told them that the dead have a lot to tell people. But while they didn't hear anything from her that night, Lily, Lily is a very present, Lily is very present in their lives. She had a lot to say in her lifetime. And both of her daughters tend to hear her voice at opportune times when they really need a word of advice or a kick in the pants. So she's not completely gone. Now, during the Depression, the sons had to leave for work. Why was this significant to write about? It, it was just a constant risk of the family breaking up. Um, Ava's fam Ava was trying to do everything she could to keep them together, but right after her, she she had a couple of hits right in a row. She, her mother died the next month. She had her baby, and her husband lost his job the same day. And there really was no other industry in most coal towns to, you know, employ anybody who'd been laid off. The mining companies owned all the businesses. So like the town's general store, you didn't even usually pay cash there. Miners were paid in scrip, which was only usable at those stores. So even if there had been another business, you couldn't have shopped there. Um, so men who lost their jobs had to leave. Um her eldest son, Dandy, named after her husband, he's still working. He's 13 years old and he's working underground as a miner. But he and his friends also start doing what they called bootleg mining, which was something I learned about when I was researching this book. It was an illegal mine. A lot of times men or boys would go into a mine that had been shut down and would continue to mine for the insignificant amounts of coal that were left over. In the book, um, Dan and his friends, they were just trying to chip away enough coal to bring home to keep their homes heated. But Ava's husband finds out about it and confronts his son. And the son ends up moving out and living in a boarding house with his friends and keeping his job. But Daniel, the husband, after that, he goes away and gets a construction job in Scranton to send money home because he can't stand that the only people earning money are his 13-year-old son and you know his his wife who's already doing the cooking and the raising of the children you know um especially in the culture of the day a man who couldn't take care of his family would have really felt you know, embarrassed and ashamed by that. So he was going to go anywhere he could to try to bring home money to keep his family afloat. A lot of men left during that period and just didn't come back. I mean, they called them de depression divorces. And 
it left a lot of women holding the bag and the family. Thankfully, that didn't happen with Ava, but, you know, it's always going to be a concern. Tell us about the telegraph. I thought that was really important to help us understand that time period. Yeah, it it, it was interesting that the, um, the phone was actually more expensive than sending a telegram. So when Lily died at the beginning of the book, they sent a quick telegram to the next town to let um, their brother know. But Daniel spent the money calling Philadelphia to talk to his sister-in-law. Um, and I don't know, telegrams have always, I guess it's growing up with books and old movies. Telegrams have always just struck me as, you know, there's this sense of drama when you open this envelope. It could be anything in there. And later in the book, after Claire writes to her sister asking for a favor, um, Ava writes back, and first of all, you would keep your words very brief in a telegram because you're paying by the word, but it's also who she is. She's very short and to the point, and that that method of communication really seemed to suit her. She would never have been somebody who would have spent the day on the phone, you know, with the phone cord stretched across the kitchen talking someone's ear off. She's always got her head down getting on to the next thing, and it just the telegram just felt like one more way to really embed in the time period that you can't just pick up the phone and call people. There was only one public phone in Ava's town, and that was in the general store, which is also where the the uh, telegrams would have been sent. It sort of served as a post office, a phone booth, and, you know, and a shop. Very different world. Now, you talk about the buying of the rocking horse. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, earlier in the book, Claire and her husband had gone out to buy Christmas presents to ship to Ava and her children. And at that point, Ava hadn't had the baby, so they didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. And Claire was in uh, Wanamaker's department store in Philadelphia, which was my favorite department store growing up. It's since closed and transformed into a Macy's. But this was actually one of my favorite parts of writing the book was looking at the town I'd grown up in and trying to see all these different layers of places that weren't there anymore. And in an old photo of Wanamaker's toy department from that period, I could just see a little bit of a rocking horse in a picture. And it just came to me that 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 would be the kind of over-the-top extravagant gift that Claire would want to buy for her sister's baby. And she would step back knowing that it would never fit in the house and her sister would think it was absolutely ridiculous. But later on, when she has a reason to purchase it for a child in her own house, she goes back to the store and it was there and it was waiting for her. So, Claire, having lost several children on her journey to motherhood, she's all the nursery has always been a work in progress, but she's it it always felt like a jinx to add anything to it in case she lost another child. So knowing that it was going to happen this time, she was able to buy herself this extravagant gift. And it you could start to see her believing that she was going to be a mother this time. The train ride. Tell us about that in social class. 
Well, um, trains were definitely, even though we have more modern trains these days, I think in some ways they were, you know, well, the train travel was certainly more convenient in those days because there were so many more stops and it was a perfectly normal thing to take the train. But there were, you know, first and second class tickets and Claire's, uh, when Claire and her daughter and the baby come to Philadelphia, they are traveling um, on a lower class ticket. And at first, Ava wonders why her her brother-in-law didn't send them first class tickets. And then when they get on the train, she realizes that they look so poor that if, if they're uncomfortable in the class they're sitting in, in first class, she would have wanted to climb under the seats because even in their best clothes, she and her child are shabby and grubby. And it's just, they're, the whole trip is very uncomfortable. They realize that they look poor when they're at, when they're at home, they know they're poor, but everybody's poor. So this is really the first time you know, other than seeing her sister again, where she's been confronted by people who really rubbing it in her face is the wrong phrase because they're not doing it deliberately, but it it, it is rubbed in her face that she is poor and she she stands out as not belonging in this place. I thought it was interesting where you said the black maid wore a dress better than anything she ever had. Tell us about that. Well, I I loved the character of Katie the maid. She's basically the only prop that Claire has in her house. And part of the reason she hired her was because all of the servants who were originally there were what she called her mother-in-law's creatures. And she knew that Katie wouldn't be. I mean, Irene, her mother-in-law, has never come out and said anything, but she's pretty sure that her mother-in-law is not comfortable with having a black maid. Um, On the other hand, when Ava gets there, I'm pretty sure that Katie is the first black person she's ever seen face-to-face. I mean, there were a lot of, there were a a lot more mixing of the races in the mines in like West Virginia and in the South, but in upstate Pennsylvania, it was a pretty white place. And, you know, it's just one more, one more sign that she is, you know, to quote Dorothy, not in Kansas anymore. But she also realizes that a lot of people would probably look down at this girl, yet here she is, she's clean, she's housed, she's got a good job, and she's, you know, wearing something that is better than anything Ava owns. And it's, it's another it's another way of looking at her poverty, but also just starting to open up to there's a larger world than anything she's been exposed to before. And she's she's not comfortable in that world, but it's not because of Katie. It's because of the limitations that she's grown up with. And she just looks at that, you know, well, my sister's figured out how to get along here. I'm going to figure out how to get along here. Now, tell us, what did you learn about the Great Depression that you didn't know as a result of researching for this book? I didn't realize that it looked so much like the world we're living in right now. Not a whole lot. We we have better technology. We have lots more shiny objects, and we have a lot more things than people did at that point. But the gap between 
rich and poor and have and have not is just as wide. And a lot of the attitudes are the same. I, uh, I did a lot of research into Philadelphia during the 1930s, because that's the city that Claire lives in and Ava comes to visit. And I've lived here all my life, but there's a lot of it I didn't know. And the fact that the city's solution to too many foreign orphans coming to the city's orphanages was not to put more money toward it or to put any kind of a limit on how many children they could take in, but to simply defund all the city's orphanages. And these foreign orphans weren't orphans from another state or another country. They might have been orphans from Delaware County, right over the city's border. They just, they didn't want, they didn't want to share. They didn't want to let anyone have, you know, Basically, they looked at everything like it was pie, and there wasn't going to be enough, so they weren't going to offer up any. And it was really uncomfortable reading some of it. Um, there were also, I don't know whether you've heard of Hoovervilles, the um, the like the shanty and tent settlements that a lot of the the homeless and the traveling um, hobos would set up in towns. A lot of times near railroads, they also had one dug into the hill behind the Philadelphia Museum of Art. There was a whole encampment set up there, you know, at least 100 people. And I tried to find out when that was closed down because there would be no way the city would have let that stay on municipal property, on an art museum grounds forever. I couldn't find any proof of when it disappeared, but it lasted long enough for my story's purposes and just for me to look at my hometown in a very different way than I did before this. What do you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? Uh, I've, I've, I really want them to feel that they've been immersed in that time, in that place, and that they now know these people. Um, I always, if my characters get a happy ending, it's always they've they've crawled across that finish line and they've earned it. And I kind of want a reader to just sit back and sigh in relief and know that, you know, everybody's more or less made it through okay. And also, is there another book? <laughs> it's always it's always you want you want a reader to put your book down and then go, oh, I wonder if they've written anything else. And that's always the the greatest compliment of all is knowing that somebody has, you know, finished a book and then gone looking for whatever's in your whatever's in your back catalog so they can read more of you. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you're going to be working on? Well, the next project is an accidental sequel to Coming Apart because the girls weren't done talking to me. You know, Ava's life made a significant change at the end of the book, and so did Claire's, but they're not they're not done growing up yet. And I don't have a complete blurb for it yet, but I basically think of the book as growing pains aren't just for children. It's the two of them learning to get by in these new lives that they've constructed for themselves. And it goes through a few more years of the depression as things start to ease. So there are political changes, there are changes in the city. And there are changes in both their lives. Well, we will be looking forward to that book. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. This was great. 